we are nearing the great crisis of this Earth's history. Keep in mind that this was written 122 years ago. How much more closer are we to the end? I want us to focus on the word crisis right now. There are many different definitions for the word crisis. But there's one which caught my attention. It was an online Oxford dictionary, lexicon.com, where it actually describes crisis as a time when a difficult or important decision has or must be made. Are we living in that time? Absolutely. We're living in a time where important and difficult decisions has to be made. Important because it depends on your salvation, on your eternal life, and difficult because there are sacrifices which comes along the way. God's plan of redemption has two crises in its face. The first crisis was during the closing scenes of the life of Christ. The final crisis, which the second one, was during the closing scenes of Earth's history. Even though these two crises are far apart, one is during Christ's time on Earth and one more is towards the last days, yet there are, two there are parallels between these two crises. And we are going to be studying the closing scenes of the life of Christ to see how or what did Christ did to be victorious in his crisis so that we can see how we, uh, what can we do in order for us to be victorious in the crisis of the earth's history. Before we go any further, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, right now I come to you in prayer and I pray and ask that you will anoint my lips so that I will speak your words and your words alone, God. Strengthen me, for I am nothing but a broken vessel who you have chosen to, um, as an instrument for today. God, as we look into the life of Christ and how he handled his crisis, I pray and ask that you will help us to see the message that you have for us on how we can prepare ourselves for the crisis which is to come in the last days. All this I like to us and pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You know, two weeks ago, Sini started her sermon with a quote which, um, which actually I also, I also have chosen to start with. You know, the first few minutes of her sermon made me a bit anxious and nervous because I thought she was going to preach the exact same sermon as what I've prepared. And it made me, like, I, I had a crisis. Like, I had an important and difficult decision to make. Should I change my sermon or should I just repeat whatever that she has shared? But eventually, as I listened more and more of her sermon, I realized that Hers was a different part of um, a different message compared to mine. So I didn't have to change my sermon. You know, my sermon, something interesting is that my sermon today is actually continuing from where Cindy stopped last two weeks. It was not planned at all. Like I, um, it was not a coincidence. When I, when I listened to all her sermon, where she stopped, I'm going to pick up in the next verse uh, and, or the next few verses. So my sermon is kind of like a continuation of Cindy's sermon. And this was the quote. Let's see. Okay. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. Here is where I want us to focus. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp scene by scene. Many of us are familiar with this quote. 
you know, Sister White encourages us to spend at least one hour of in a day to just contemplate on the life of Christ and more specifically towards the last hours of his life from the Garden of Gethsemane all, all the way till his death on the cross. You know, when I, when I was younger, when I understood this, this um, statement, I tried applying it. But then in less than 5-10 minutes, I already went through from Garden of Gethsemane to the cross. And I was wondering, how, how can you contemplate for one hour? But here, the words it says, let the imagination grasp scene by scene. In other words, don't just imagine it swiftly. Imagine the details in depth. Think of the situation around, like what kind of, uh, how the crowds were reacting to. Don't, don't just focus on Christ. Imagine the scenario around him, the surrounding around him. Don't miss out any details. Put as much details as you can. So imagine the details in depth, and then will we truly realize how, de- uh, how deep is Christ's love for us? You know, this, verse, uh, this statement also ends by saying, if we would be saved at last, we must learn the lessons of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. This statement is not uh, common, or maybe not many of us may have remembered, but even in this statement, there is a message for us. How many of us want to be saved in the last days? I'm pretty sure all of us. So look, is this a message which we should negotiate? It says that if you want to be saved, we must It's not you may or you could consider, it's a must to learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of cross. Now, let's read Revelation 14 verse 4 to begin our study. We're going to spend a few thoughtful hours in the contemplation of the closing scenes of the life of Christ. We're also going to take this challenge found in Revelation 14 verse 4 in regards to the 144,000. It says here, These are they which, are not, which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Look, the Bible teaches us that the 144,000 were close behind Jesus. Wherever Jesus go, they just followed. Never once did they left his side. And if you want to be part of the 144,000, the part of the, the people who survives when Christ comes again, it says here that we should follow him wherever we go, wherever he goes. And as we look at the great crisis of this earth history that is just before us, it's good for us to see how did Christ do in his crisis. Because remember, we want to follow him as close as possible. How he faced his crisis is how we want to emulate as well, how we are going to prepare ourselves so that we can be successful in this crisis which is to come. Let's also read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Many of us, including myself, we read this verse in a very broad and general sense. We, we say that, oh, whatever Jesus, like his life on earth, is supposed to be an example for us. Well, that is true. But Peter was talking about something more specific. Peter said here that, look, because Christ also suffered for us, that is what should be an example. Peter was focusing on the sufferings of Christ. 
In other words, the closing scenes of the life of Christ. Peter was saying, look into that. That is your example. Look into Christ's suffering. That is your example. This is what Peter is asking us to follow. And as we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where his human flesh is recoiling at the thought of taking the sins of the world upon him, are we willing to follow him there? As he's there praying to his Father for the Father's will to be done, are we willing to follow him there? As the angry mob treats him inhumanely, even, even not like how they'll treat an animal, they drag him to the place of trial and falsely accuse him. Are we willing to follow him there? As the final word comes out of the lips of Pilate, are we willing to follow him there? And ultimately, as he goes to the cross to die for our sins, are we willing to follow Christ there as well? Sorry, the words are too small. It says here, in Review and Herald, the Lord has a people on the earth who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. We need not wait till we are all translated to follow Christ. God's people may do this here below. We shall follow the Lamb of God in the courts above only if we follow Him here. Look, the only way for us to follow Christ if, if we follow Him here is not, until we, it's not that we wait until we reach heaven or what. It's here itself. And following him in heaven depends on our keeping his commandments now. We are not to follow Christ fitfully or capriciously only when it is for our advantage. Don't follow Christ only when he is giving you benefits. If, if he calls you, you have to sacrifice stuff. You have to go through some tough times. Follow him there as well. Are we following the Lamb wherever he goes? To be part of the 144,000, we have to follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even if it means trials, persecution, and even false accusation. The 144,000 follows Christ closely, even through sufferings as Christ has left them an example. This was what Peter, First Peter was sharing about. So we're going to look at the thing which helped Christ meet His crisis. We're going to look at the life of Christ, more specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane, because that's when his crisis started. And that's where the first crisis of the plan of redemption began. Because remember, the plan of redemption, God's plan of re redemption involves two crises. One is Christ, the closing scenes of the life of Christ, and one more is the closing scenes of the earth's history. So we're going to see how did Christ handle this first crisis? How did he become victory? victorious over this crisis so that we also can apply the same lessons for us. So let's read Matthew chapter 26, starting from verse 36. This one, I did not put the verse on top because it's going to be a long one. So it's talking about Christ Gethsemane prayer, or I also named it as crisis prayer. Matthew 26, starting from verse 36. It says, then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. 
And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as, uh, as thou wilt. Verse 40. And he cometh unto the disciple and findeth them asleep and said unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and said unto them, Sleep on and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Between the hours of 9 p.m. And, mid and midnight on a Thursday evening, Christ, we see Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells his disciples that his heart is so sorrowful, even unto death. He even admonishes them twice, watch and pray, lest he enter not into temptation. But even then, he knows our human struggle. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see the weakness of the flesh in the disciples as they struggle to stay awake, to pray together with Christ. Three times Christ came to the disciples in this great time of trial of Christ's life. As the salvation of man is in the balance, as he pleads with the Father for grace and strength to meet this trial just before him, but the disciples were found sleeping. They were not fighting or praying together with Christ for the strength and all. You know, in Signs of Times, December 2, it says, At the end of an hour, Jesus, feeling the need of human sympathy, rose from the ground and staggered to the place where he had left his three disciples. Do you know what it means to stagger? It means to walk or move unsteadily, as if you're about to fall. Christ didn't even have that much strength to walk. Like, he, he, he was really feeling so burdened. And it says his human nature yearned for sympathy. He longed to hear from them words that would bring him some relief in his suffering. But he was disappointed. They did not bring to him the help he craved. Instead, he finded them sleeping. Do you see the humanity of Christ here? He is praying and asking his Father for strength to accomplish the Father's will. Christ showed his human weaknesses that he is not able to fulfill the, the Father's will without the Father's strength. He comes to the disciples not to wake them up, even though that's what happened, but he came to the disciples to actually um, come because he was yearning for human sympathy and compassion. He was so discouraged and everything, and he came to the disciples hoping that they would give him some words of encouragement. But when he came there, he saw them asleep. What great privilege would it have been to be a disciple of Christ at that time? You know, you can, you are able, you have that opportunity to actually encourage Christ himself. You're able to encourage your, the Savior yourself. All this while, Christ is the one who's encouraging us in our times of trouble. But that one moment, 
where Christ was the one who needed encouragement and he looked to humans for that. Imagine what great privilege the disciples had. But they missed it. They didn't pray with him. They let the opportunity slip by. Deeply disappointed, Christ turns back and continues the battle in the garden alone between him and his father. You know, it says here, by these sleeping disciples is represented a sleeping church when the day of God's visitation is nigh. It is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous. The sleeping disciples represents a sleeping church, not just in any generation, but in a generation where it's the most perilous time to sleep. It's the most dangerous time to be found sleeping. You know, unfortunately, many Christians, including ourselves, are spiritually sleepwalking. Yeah, we come to church every week. We sing all the hymns, we sing the scripture songs joyously, we mingle with our brothers, sisters in Christ, stay for potluck, and some of us, we may even stay for the church activities in the afternoon, but we are still sleepwalking. Throughout the week, we neglect our time in studying God's Word. Throughout the week, we neglect our time spending, uh, spending time in the prayer chamber with God. Throughout the week, we might have little or maybe no time at all in prayer or Bible study. We are sleeping in the most perilous time of Earth's history, in a time when our destiny is hanging in the balances. You know, those sleeping disciples, they represent me as well. Like, we are all sleepwalking in the most perilous times. We, we do not see how urgent it is or how, how serious it is. We think that oh, Christ's coming is still far away. But it says here that, look, it's the most perilous times for us to even feel that way. We need to sense the urgency of His soon coming. You know, if the disciples represent a sleeping church during the earth's, uh, earth's closing history, then Christ would represent a group of people who is praying earnestly and pleading for the strength of the Father and winning battles in the prayer chamber. I want, us to, I want to follow the example of Christ, not the example of the disciples. Christ was praying in His crisis, whereas the disciples, they were sleeping. You know how we act today, or how we act in this time of Earth's history, will determine how we act in the crisis which is to come. You see, when, like, when the mob came to capture, when the angry soldiers and all of them came to capture Christ, both Christ and the disciples reacted very differently. Christ was calm. He was like, okay, I'm willing to be captured. He, he, the way he faced it was so different. Whereas the disciples, Peter, he took the sword and cut off the servants' ears and they started being like, very rash, and they did so many things which they regretted after that. You see, how, how, can, how can they react so differently to the same situation? It's all, it, it can only be explained by how they prepared themselves just before the crisis came, just before the trials came. Christ prayed while the disciples slept. 
No, it says here that it was in sleeping when Jesus bade him watch and pray that, pre- that Peter had prepared the way for his great sin. When did pre- Peter prepare his way for the great sin? It was while he was sleeping. Christ was admonishing him, watch and pray. But the moment he chose, he chose sleep over watching and praying is when he made the way for his great sin. And what was Peter's great sin? Denying Christ three times. Not just once, but three times. And it's not going to be different for any of us as well. If we are sleepwalking in our spiritual experience with God today, we are going to be, we are not, not we may, we will deny Christ when the crisis comes, just like Peter did. Look, Peter in his life had many good intentions. He was willing to fight, he was willing to go and preach, he was willing to do so many good things uh, when Christ was on earth and all. But he was not willing to join with Christ in prayer. Some of us are so active in church activities. Some of us are willing to go do outreach, do this and that. But when it comes to winning battles in our prayer chamber, when it comes to prayer, we run away or we shy away, just like Peter did. Look, when the battle comes, we pull out our sword and we end up doing things which we regret, just like how Peter pulled up his sword and cut off the servants here. So it was in sleeping that Peter prepared the way for his great sin. God help us that we do not follow his example. So the tool to overcome the crisis was Jesus prayed while others slept. Prayer is the tool which Christ used to overcome his crisis, his struggles, his conflict, his trials. Prayer was what helped him to overcome it. Many of us, if not all of us, have prayer as our tool. But if you have a tool and you do not know how to use it, then what's the point of the tool? Like you have a hammer, but you do not know how to use it. The hammer becomes useless. So we are going to learn and see how are we going to, how do we use this tool? We're going to look at Christ's prayer in this Garden of Gethsemane and see what were the characteristics of his prayer. Look, if we think that prayer is just all about praises and bringing our requests, that, that is nothing. That is like, in educational terms, we'll say elementary school prayer. There is more to that in prayer. So we're going to see the three characteristics of Christ's Gethsemane prayer, or Christ's crisis prayer. So let's start with Matthew 26, verse 39. It says, And he went a little further and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. See, Christ is praying for the, for the strength to do the Father's will. You know, there's something interesting in this prayer which many of us miss. Many of us are aware of this, nevertheless, not as I will, but thou will be done. But there's something interesting in this prayer itself. Christ did not hesitate in asking the Father what He exactly desired, even though what He desired was not the Father's will. He said, look, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. I do not want to go through these trials. I do not want to go through this time of suffering. I do not want to go through this crisis. Please remove it from me. Christ was not afraid. He showed His humanity there. He showed that, look, I'm human too. I don't want to do this. 
Christ was praying a prayer which was not according to the Father's will. But he ends his prayer by saying, not as I will, but as thou wilt. But when you compare all three of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you will notice something interesting. See, the first prayer, it starts off by saying he really did not want to go through this. It was his desire. But as he gets further and further into his prayer, the second and third prayer, he spent hours praying, his prayer changed. We, you know, when we read uh, Matthew 26, we seem as if it's just minutes of prayers, because it's just few verses. But we read earlier in Science of Times, it says, at the end of hour, an hour. So this was actually hours of prayer. Christ was spending hours and hours in prayer with God the Father. And the more he prayed, the more Christ's will started becoming more like the Father's will. It is because we spend so little time in prayer that we pray selfish prayer and we don't get past what we want to what the Father's will is. You know, we are still stuck on what we want. Christ spent hour after hour in prayer and His will began to change more and more like the Father's will. That's what we need to. In this final crisis, we want the will of the Father to be done or to be, to be done in our life, to be accomplished in our life. And we want the will to be accomplished not by us forcing ourselves to do it, but because we want to do it. So if you saw in Matthew 26, verse 39, just now it says that he, this was his first prayer. He says, Oh Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But in verse 42, his second time when he prays, he says, Oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, that will be done. And verse 44, he repeats and says, And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. If you notice the second and third prayer of Christ's Gethsemane prayer, it became more like the Father's will. He never prayed for His will anymore. He starts saying, Look, if, th if this is what has to happen, then fine, let it happen. The first hour, the first prayer He did was all about Himself. He was praying, Please, I don't want to go through this. But as he continues spending hour and hour, his prayer changed. He's like, if this has to happen, let it happen. So the first characteristic of Christ's, Christ's prayer is that it's a prayer of thy will be done. We pray until our desire changes to become the Father's will. Our desire becomes the Father's desire. And it doesn't happen overnight or like some five minutes prayer or stuff like that. But it develops as we, as our prayer life gets deeper and deeper with Christ, with God. So the first characteristics is that will be done. Now the second characteristic is found in Matthew 26 verse 40. In Matthew 26 verse 40, it says, And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and said unto Peter, what? Could he not watch with me one hour? Keep in mind that Christ was recoiling. He was trembling. He was... He didn't want to go through this experience. He was recoiling at this thought that all the sins of the world is being placed on him. Christ, he had never sinned at all in his life. He never even knew what it was like to be separated from his father. He didn't know about the experience... He, he didn't know about that experience, but he knew enough that he didn't want to experience it. He knew that if he 
took the sins of the world, he will be separated from his father. He knew that well enough and he didn't want that. We see that in his first prayer. He didn't want the sins of the world to be placed upon him, which will result in the separation of him and his father. But as much as he didn't want that, he was still willing to do the father's will. What's interesting throughout Christ's crisis prayer was, as he was struggling and doing and praying for the uh, praying for strength to go to all of this, never once did anyone came beside him and say, Hey Jesus, you can do this. Or never once did anyone just put their arms around Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm praying for you. Never once did anybody came and encourage him and say, Jesus, you got a dark time, you got a dark, um, dark period coming in front of you. You better start praying with God more. Never once did anyone encourage him. Would it have meant a lot for Christ if someone actually came and Say that to him. We read that earlier. It says that he longed to see and hear. But he was disappointed. He longed for it. But Christ took it upon himself to, to go into prayer no matter what other, others were doing around him. He didn't care what others did around him. He didn't care what other people were talking or what they were doing. But he was like, you know what? I'll still go into the prayer chamber. I'm still going to pray. Sometimes we get so discouraged by looking around what's happening around us. We're like, ah, this person did this, this person did that, he said this, he said that. And we get so discouraged and we blame God and we're like, don't want to go to prayer just because of that. Look, if Christ looked at the disciples throughout uh, his prayer time, he would have easily been discouraged. Because he was praying, he looked the other side, the disciples were sleeping he would have easily been discouraged. And he could have just said like, enough is enough. I'm done with this. I'm, I'm just going to go back home. Because my disciples are sleeping. They're not even praying with me. What more the rest of the world? And, but he kept his eyes on the Father. And the Father is the one who gave him the strength and he continued to persevere in that prayer life individually. He didn't wait for others to encourage him. He did it by his own. Many of us, including myself, we don't really have a clear understanding of how necessary it is for to pray for our spiritual experience. Yes, we may understand it theoretically that prayer is the breath of um, our soul and all. But to experience it, it's a different story. Too often we depend on other people's encouragement. If people say, come, let's pray together, that's when we pray. Or if people say, have you prayed? Or um, when they encourage you, that's when you want to go and pray. But look, it is good to hear those encouragements. And yes, we do appreciate those encouragements. But we got to learn to take the battle upon ourselves. We got to learn to take this fight upon ourselves individually. Just like how Christ took this battle individually at the Garden of Gethsemane. It says in selected messages that there are people in the church, there are persons in the church who are not converted and who will not unite in earnest prevailing prayer. We must enter upon the work, how? Individually. We must enter, we must learn to enter upon praying individually, not because other people encourage us, not because other people ask us to do it, but we must learn to start praying by ourselves, even if other people discourage us. We must pray more and talk less. 
this this is from the chapter uh, of which is a call for revival you know it sounds ironic you know but it's actually not all revival starts with prayer if you want to see revival in yourself you want to see a change in your life you want to see revival in your church you want to see revival in your family you want to see revival in for those of you who are doing uh, doing bible studies you want to see revival in your bible bible study students or if you want to see more more bible students or more bible study contacts pray without prayer nothing can be accomplished get in the prayer chamber prayer chamber is where the battle is fought says so here one member working in right lines will lead other members to unite with him in making intercessions for the revelation of the holy spirit see this is the power of church members one person's earnest individual prayer can lead another person to also do the same imagine what power it would bring if the whole church does this because it says here that look one person can lead another person one person's earnest prayer can lead another person imagine if the whole church prays earnestly maybe we might we might see the work come to a close christ would have already been here how many of like how many of us here actually do join the 40 days of prayer or actually a prayer meeting group which we have throughout the week you know we are told in pastoral ministries that prayer meeting is the pulse of the church body how important is a pulse in a human human's body it's very important basically if you don't have a pulse you're dead and that's what is written here prayer meeting is the pulse of the church body if you are not praying or if the church is not praying as a whole the church is basically like dead so we must pray more and talk less so the second characteristic of christ christ's prayer was that he entered into this work individually he didn't wait for others to encourage him or someone to call him along to pray no matter what others do or what others say he was like i need to pray i go and pray so for for the third characteristic let's read luke chapter 22 verse 44 it says and being in an agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground how was christ praying how was he feeling he was in agony have you ever agonized in the lord with the lord in prayer i hope you all have did that i even hope that i have agonized with god in prayer but and it says here that look being in agony what he did was he prayed more earnestly christ prayer in the garden of gethsemane crescendos it may have started like with with a normal prayer like just simple and all but as the time of crisis came closer as the time of trial the suffering came closer and closer he prayed more intense and more earnestly he started crying out and everything his he be, his prayer became so intense to the point he even sweat great drops of blood you know it's interesting that only this gospel this gospel recorded that he sweat great drops of blood 
Luke being a physician or a doctor would definitely have recorded this. Uh, no, um, I did some research about this. It actually does occur. It is a rare medical condition which is called hematohydrosis. It occurs when somebody is actually under a great emotional and mental stress with acute fear and intense mental contemplation. See, four things are going on in their life. Emotional, self, emotional stress, mental stress, with acute fear and mental contempla contemplation. So many things going on in their mind. And what happens is their blood capillaries will rupture. It will burst. And it will go mix with the sweats of the blood and they'll sweat blood. So it is not pure blood which comes out of Christ's sweat. It was mixed with uh, sweat as well. But it only occurs when somebody is put under immense amount of stress. This was what Jesus was going through. You know, all this while when I was younger, I thought Jesus sweating blood was some supernatural event. It's like, oh, he's God, so that's why he's sweating blood. Uh, oh, it's only something which God could have done or something like that. But as I was preparing this sermon, I realized that that was not the case. Christ's sweating blood was to show how earnest and intense his prayer was. How much he was battling and struggling with the, with God in prayer. Look, there was also interesting things which I found about uh, people who suffer hematohydrosis is that they will suffer from an extremely sensitive skin. Not just sensitive skin, but extremely sensitive skin. And they will also suffer dehydration as a result of hematohydrosis. Why I put this here? Look, how many of us, like if, if I punch or slap someone here, it will definitely be painful, right? And we are having normal skin. Imagine Christ, he just sweat blood. His skin became extremely sensitive. He went through, like, he went through slapping, whipping, wearing the crown of thorns, and nails driven in his palm and feet. Now you see why I put this here? He had extremely sensitive skin. The sufferings he went through just doubled, tripled. Who knows, maybe just the, the touch of the nail would have been painful already for him because of the sensitive skin. But now it's driven in him. He was slapped. Crown of thorns was pressed upon his head. So you see, Christ's suffering is more in-depth. What about dehydration? Well, after in the garden, from Garden of Gethsemane, he was dragged to other places. He was interrogated. So he walked for a long distance and he was interrogated. They were forcing him to answer their questions. They, and then after that, they finally asked him to carry the cross to another place. Look, if you are dehydrated, you feel so weak and everything. Christ... He carried the cross and went to Golgotha before they crucified him there. You know, now, when, when I read back the word, I thirst, which Christ said on the cross, it means so much deeper already to me. It has a deeper meaning to me already. Christ suffered dehydration, like through hematohydrosis, Christ must have suffered dehydration in the Garden of Gethsemane itself. But hours later, many hours later only, he said, I thirst. He really came to the breaking point. Really, he says, "I can't." 
See, Christ's suffering did not, Christ's physical suffering did not begin after the Garden of Gethsemane. It began even in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, you see, this is an intense prayer life. Him praying until he sweated blood. This was an intense prayer life. You know, I don't even know anything about intense prayer life. I haven't even come close. Like, I'm even ashamed to say that even in my prayer, I never even sweat. But Christ, he prayed till he was sweating blood. Many of us, including myself, we struggle to maybe do even, I don't know, a one-minute prayer. And even if we do succeed in doing a one-minute prayer, it becomes just a simple, shallow prayer where we just pray for simple things, instead of really battling with God in prayer, even in that one minute. The best many of us maybe have given is when we cry out to God in prayer in our tough time. Maybe a family member or a loved one is sick in the hospital, so that's when you battle. Maybe that's the closest we may have come to when, it's, uh, when it comes to intense or earnest prayer life. However, we are told in early writings, page 269, paragraph 1, it says that I saw some with strong faith and agonizing cries, pleading with, with God. Their countenance were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenance. Large drops of perspiration fell from their foreheads. Look, this is not talking about Christ or anyone. This is talking about the group of Christians who are living in the last days just before Christ comes again. Are we going to have a similar experience to what Christ had? Yes, it says here, we will be praying, we will have intense prayer life to the point large drop of sweat or perspiration will fall from our forehead. Yeah, we're not going to be sweating blood, but at least we will be sweating great drops of sweat. There will be an intensity in our prayer lives in the closing scene of Earth's history. So the third characteristic of Christ's crisis prayer was, it was an earnest prayer. It was not just, oh well, I have to pray, so I pray. But he really was earnest. He really meant every single word he prayed for. So the three characteristics of Christ's crisis prayer was, Christ's crisis prayer was a prayer of, Thy will be done. It was a prayer that was individually fought and won with the Lord in prayer. And it was also a prayer of earnestness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the prayer life of Christ which we just learned and the prayer life of the Christians living in the end times which we just read in early writings just now does not happen instantaneously. It does not happen overnight. It's going to... It's going to Take, it's a long process. You have to train. You have to do it regularly before, it, before you can actually pray like how Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps the reason why the disciples struggled or failed to pray together with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane was because they were not willing to enter with Christ into prayer prior to the Garden of Gethsemane. Throughout Christ's ministry on earth, the three and a half years he was with the disciples, whenever Christ prayed, the disciples were not always there with him. He was praying alone. And 
there was something interesting which I found about Christ's prayer in the book Prayer. It says Jesus prayed early in the morning. The early morning often found him in some secluded places, meditating, searching the scriptures, or in prayer. With the voice of singing, he welcomed the morning light. With songs of thanksgiving, he cheered his hours and brought heaven's gladness to the toil worn and disheartened. How beautiful it would have been to hear the Savior singing. Like we all sing right now, but Christ was a perfect human being. Imagine a perfect voice singing. Imagine Christ singing. It would have been beautiful to hear that. But the disciples, again they missed another great opportunity. They did not join with him to pray or do morning devotion with him. So that is why they, like, they, were, they had trouble, they had difficulty to pray with God during the comfort time that when the crisis time came, it was impossible for them to pray with God. Before the trials and struggles come in our life, we better start preparing ourselves to have a habit of praying always. Because then it will be easier for us to pray when the crisis comes. Because if we don't have the habit right now, it's going to be hard for us to pray. People grow in their prayer education. My question for you is, where are you in your prayer education? Are you still doing elementary, preschool kind of prayer or primary, secondary, college? Or are you at PhD level already? Where are you in your prayer education? Don't, you don't have to answer that question right now. Bring this question to God in prayer. Maybe when you go back home, bring this question to God in prayer. Ask Him to show you where exactly are you in your prayer education. He will give you an exact answer. He will show you exactly where you are. And He will show you how to grow as well. We need to grow in our prayer education. The more time we devote to our prayer life, the more we will enjoy it and the more higher we will grow in our prayer education as well. Christ won the battle. Christ won this crisis or Christ won this battle at the Garden of Gethsemane, not on the cross. Keep in mind, if Christ's first prayer was to come out of suffering and he never battled with God in prayer and he looked at the disciple, he would have been discouraged already. His will would not have been changed to become the Father's will and he would give up on saving us already. That is why the battle was won in the garden itself. Not during the crisis, it was before the crisis. So don't wait until trials or tribulations come into your life to say that that's when I will spend time with God. Because you will only be successful if you prepare before the, beforehand. I pray that by God's grace, by the time the crisis comes, we will all be having PhD in our prayer education. So, and like what the book Early Writings described just now, we'll pray drops of uh, sweat. We will have similar experience like that. And we will be victorious throughout that crisis. We need to reach to the point where we have a strong relationship with God that He would be the only person you could think of Whenever you have a problem, whenever you have a situation, he will be the only person, not, not the first, but the only person you could think of to run to. Christ had that deep relationship with him. That is why in his crisis time, he ran to his father first. 
No, in Christ, uh, in Matthew 10, verse 36, Christ wonders this, and a man's foes shall be they of this of his own household. Look, we will come to a point of time where even our own family, friends, maybe even church members, will be our worst enemies. Where are you going to turn for help at that time? Who are you going to look for at that time? Christ turned to his disciples, but he couldn't find any help. There was no one to encourage him. He was disappointed. The only place where he found encouragement was his father. We have to be deep in our relationship with God the Father, so that whenever a trial comes, the first and the only place we run to is the Father himself. Only there can we find encouragement and strength. Where are you in your prayer education? Do we have space to grow in our prayer education? We all do. There is still space for us to grow in our prayer life. I honestly, uh, I have the faith that each of us have the desire to have the deep relationship with God. But we're facing a lot of struggle. And I have this hope also that we will be able to achieve that deep relationship which we, which we desire to have with the Father. As we go back home later, pray and ask, Lord, show me where am I in my prayer education and listen to His answer. His answer may be painful for us to hear. His answer may show us that we are not, not anywhere near what He wanted us to be. It might break our pride and all. But just listen to it. Take it and pray and ask like the disciples ask Christ. Teach me how to pray. If that is your desire, I invite all of us to pray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, I'd like to pray and ask God that we know that we are nowhere near where you want us to be in our prayer education. But we have that faith that you will bring us there. Many times we fool ourselves by thinking we are already strong in our spiritual walk. We are already good in our prayer life, in our Bible study life. But we've been fooling ourselves all this while, God. Break that stony heart of ours. Break that pride in us. And help us to hear to that still small voice of yours, which teaches us where exactly we are and what should we do to deepen our relationship with you. Give us that strength, God, to spend time with you in prayer, so that by the time the crisis comes, just like how Christ was, was having his crisis prayer, praying in earnest, intense prayer life, we will also be doing that. Help us, God, to be prepared for your soon return. And that preparation begins with prayer, so help us with our prayer life. All this, I'd like to ask and pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.